Well, good morning. I'm delighted to be here again, and uh, you know you're in the right place when the college plays football with the correct shape of ball. <laughs> and uh, although the comments made by your president as to the nature of soccer, uh, obviously, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't comment on it at all. I think I should just, I think I should just leave it as it is. Um, Although I find it hard, you know, to accept that kind of thing from a group of people who uh, park on the driveway and who drive on the parkway. So uh, um, you, you do have some of your own inconsistencies, I'm forced to point out. <laughs> Last evening when I got home from church, uh, as I was devouring my uh, sixth piece of pizza, I was beginning to think about this morning. And as I had been driving home in the car with John, I'd said to him, what am I supposed to do tomorrow morning? And he'd essentially said, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I'm just not sure what to do. And I was reminded of a young Anglican clergyman who, when he went to take his first church, had never preached. And on the first morning that he was going to preach, he had written to his bishop earlier in the week, asking him a simple question, dear bishop, what should I preach about? And the bishop sent him a postcard back which read, Preach about God and preach about 20 minutes. Which actually isn't bad advice when you think about it. But last evening as we were discussing it, John said, as a sort of throwaway line, Why don't you think about five things that you would want to say to students at this point in their student career and then just say it? So I thought, and I, I couldn't think of five. But I thought of ten. And uh, I'm going to try and work my way through them and give them to you. I've always appreciated a turn of phrase. I have enjoyed uh, English literature. I've enjoyed some American poets, notably Robert Frost. And for whatever reason, things stick in my mind. Uh, quotes that I wish I could forget, and yet I can't. So that phraseology like um, uh, Woody Allen's line, it's not that I'm afraid to die, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens, uh, registers, registers with me. Um, his other one which I can't quote directly, he says, uh, never before in the history of humanity have we been presented with such a crossroads. On the one hand, the pathway leads to annihilation. On the other hand, the pathway leads to despair and meaninglessness. May we know how to choose correctly, which is almost the ultimate cynicism. I had a little friend who's now in heaven called T.S. Mooney, a wee Irishman, who was a convinced bachelor. And on one Sunday afternoon, walking to a meeting in the north of Scotland with him, I asked him, I said, T.S., why have you never married? And he replied with two of his uh, quotable quotes, which he obviously had used many times before. He said, first of all to me, he said, I would rather go through life wanting what I don't have than having what I don't want. <laughs> and then he said in a more humble vein, he said, in my case, the desirable has always been unattainable, and the attainable has always been undesirable. <laughs> and so it is 
uh, that things like that register in my mind. For example, I remember reading a review of, of Hamlet in England, and the fellow said of the individual who played King Hamlet, he said, um, he played the king as if somehow knowing that another stood in the wings waiting to play the ace. This is a devastating statement. And another where somebody was maligning an individual who had made some attempt at a dramatic performance and the commentator cynically said, in this performance, Miss X ran through the whole gamut of human emotion from A to B. <laughs> okay? So, with that in mind, what I want to do is just to give to you, as it were, some landing lights in my life. This evening at 8 o'clock I'll fly to San Jose, God willing. And when we finally uh, make our approach, it's going to be imperative that the landing lights are in place, that they are in line, so that we might land safely. These quotes or statements that I'm going to give you are a variety of things that come from different places. Some of them come from the Bible, which ought to be reassuring to us both. But they are essentially things which I share with you in light of the fact that essentially they frame my life and my ministry, these things. They're, they're not the totality of what I believe or what I'm about, but they're some of what I'm about. They are the sum of my thinking between the seventh slice of pizza last evening and my second egg done to perfection this morning. Okay, number one, if you're taking notes, go ahead. If you're not, go ahead. First one I want to give you, I quoted yesterday morning when I preached. It's from C.T. Studd. I won't identify them all because I can't identify them all. But the one that I want, with which I would choose to begin is the great quote from C.T. Studd, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I will ever make for him could ever be too great. That, I would have to say, is a foundational principle, is a cornerstone, is a crucial landing light as I prepare under God to make it safely onto the runway of heaven, as it were. It is essentially the principle which Paul expounds in 1 Corinthians 6, dealing primarily with the whole relationship of the Christian to their body and peculiarly to the matter of sexuality. And at the end of it, in verses 19 and 20, he reminds his readers, he says, get this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. One of the most unattractive elements of Christianity to me in this day, and I find it most unattractive when I see it first in myself, is that dimension of living which seems to suggest that any who may give their lives to God in his service are somehow doing him a great service. It stems from the kind of teaching that we got at Sunday school, many of us, when we heard the story of the loaves and the fish, the unbelief of the disciples as Jesus said, you give them something to eat. The response of Philip, hey, there's a wee guy here with his lunch. Five loaves, two fish, 
But what are these among so many? The amazing intervention of Jesus. And then the application of the Sunday school teacher. What an amazing little boy this was. Wouldn't you like to be a little boy like this? Would you like to be a hero and give up your five loaves and two fish and then everybody would know about you? Would you like to be the talk of the crowds? And so the whole focus is absolutely upside down. The miracle of the story is not that a wee guy gave up his lunch. The miracle of the story is that Jesus Christ, who could create ex nihilo, should choose to give the little guy a piece of the action. You're here this morning at the outset of your academic career, many of you. You have your plans and your dreams, your hopes and your schemes. May I say to you, landing lights, no sacrifice that you will ever make for Jesus Christ will ever be anything in the comparison to his death on the cross for you. That is landing light number one. Number two, this is a quote from scripture. This is the man to whom I will look. Man is used there generically, I guess, although primarily in the context, as the prophet writes, he recognizes his place in the purposes of God. I want to know how that sentence ends. If God says, this is the kind of man, this is the kind of girl to whom I will look, I want to know what comes after the comma, as it were. What does he say? What is the kind of man to whom God will look? A man with the gift of the gab? A man with great notions of himself? A girl with an exalted self-esteem? The kind of person who can walk in on a group and take charge? Is that how it ends? No. This is the man to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That to me is one of the most challenging verses in the whole of the Bible. Because as I see myself in the mirror of God's word, I'm confronted unmistakably with my pride. How difficult to sort out one's motives. And when in the silence, as it were, of our own hearts, in the quietness of our own car, or in our room before God, where the reality of who we really are is known to God and known to us, I have to recognize that I'm further removed from that picture than ever I would care to be. And so one of the landing lights of my life has been to ask God to do whatever he needs to do today to make me that man. Most of us are too quick to write the book, Humility and How I Attained It, or to stick a sign on our, on our college door which says, No, I am not conceited although I have every right to be so. For most of us, a posture of humility is some kind of cringing nonsense whereby we claim that we can't play the piano when somebody needs the piano played. Oh no, I can't play the piano. It's a stinking lie. Of course you can play the piano. <laughs> oh no, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. I'm, you know, like David Copperfield. You read David Copperfield? 
Not you know, David Copperfield, Charles Dickens, David Copperfield, Dickens wrote it, David starred in it, you know. And, and in, there, in there, you have the character Uriah Heep. What a name, Uriah Heep. I mean, if you've got an enemy, call him Uriah Heep. You like that? Yeah. Probably play for West Virginia in that game. Uriah Heep. And what does he spend all his time doing? He spends all his time fawning and cringing and saying, I am your humble servant. I am ever so humble. I am very humble. He always dropped the H, you see, to prove how humble he was. For it would have been presumptuous of him to hold the H. It would have been pretentious. So he wasn't humble. He was humble. Master Copperfield. There's nothing quite as obnoxious as somebody who is so proud as to have to keep telling us how humble they are. And I want to say, on the authority of God's Word, without question, you and I may be sure that we will amount to nothing in the service of God until first we get to grips with this deep, assured statement here in the Old Testament prophets. Landing light number two has to do with humility. Landing light number three has to do with serving God. Quote, There is no ideal place to serve God except the place He sets you down. There is no ideal place to serve God except the place He sets you down. Now, I ought to be able to speak to this with authority, don't you think? Anybody who comes from Cleveland and can make a statement like this must have some measure of understanding, I would suggest to you. I did not arrive in Cleveland because I looked on the globe and said, My, my, that looks like a super place to spend your life. <laughs> I didn't read all the back, the back editions of Newsweek and read about the Cuyahoga River going on fire and say, Whoo, that's the kind of place I'd like. That must be the eighth wonder of the world, you know. I didn't choose to leave the beauty and tranquility and theological vastness of Scotland behind to come and live in what is known as the armpit of America. <laughs> so what in the world am I doing there? That's a good question. I'll tell you why I'm there. I'm there because there is no ideal place to serve God except the place in which he sets you down. And on a monthly basis, without a shadow of a doubt, somebody from some scenic pasture in the continental United States calls me up and says, Al, wouldn't you like to get away from that barren wasteland there in the Midwest? Don't you like the sun? Yeah. Wouldn't you like to be able to play golf late into November? Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to be able to walk out and never buy any more winter clothes? Yeah. Will you come? No. Because God has called me to that place. It's not ideal geographically. 
It's not ideal theologically. You try and minister in a heavy ethnic Roman Catholic city. It is not ideal logistically. After four years monkeying around in a high school and two more to go probably before we are able to function effectively. But I want to tell you this morning that I am happy, I am content, I am fulfilled, I am committed as God continues to hold me there to the exercise of that ministry. And I want to say to some of you young guys that pretty soon are going to start sending individuals like me your resumes. Don't you dare send me a resume on which you write that you feel you can only serve in a church that is quotes, and I'm quoting from resumes now, white collar, not blue. At least 500 in membership with at least a certain starting salary and providing you can only fulfill the narrow parameters of your expectations. You say, I would never be so bold to do such a thing. Well then, if that is true, thank God and don't ever do it. But I want you to know that if you're that kind of individual, you're fairly unique. What kind of collar did Matthew wear when Christ called him? What kind of collar, if any collar, did Peter wear as he struggled with those fishing boats? There's no ideal place to serve God except the place in which he set you down. That's landing light. Number three, number four. I'll start moving quickly in just a moment for your encouragement. Number four. For sure, says somebody. Uh, spiritual endowment or endowment, as you say, but it is U-E, therefore it should sound endowment. Spiritual endowment is more important than educational advancement. Spiritual endowment is more important than educational advancement. Well, well, says somebody, is this to embrace a posture of stupidity or of ignorance? Is this to say that we can turn over what we've just been exhorted to in terms of our papers? No, not for a moment. There is a great need in the church of Jesus Christ and amongst the lay people in the church of Jesus Christ for sanctified scholarship. What I'm saying to you is in no way the denigration of a pursuit of academic excellence, but it is to say this, that ultimately, in terms of our dependence, it is spiritual endowment which will carry the day rather than educational advancement. I have a number of men in my church who frankly, theologically, are a lot more qualified than I may ever be. And yet somehow or another they do very little for God in terms of uh, what they had set out to do as they approached seminary. Somewhere along the line as they began to advance in academia, they began to lose conviction regarding theology. They began to lose a sense of dependence upon God and today they have advanced educationally they have diminished spiritually. What I'm saying is this, when you get down on your knees at the end of a day and you thank God for what you've been able to accomplish in your studies and you give to him the following day that comes, give yourself to it with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. 
But remember the second landing light. The man to whom God will look will be the one of humility and contrite spirit and who trembles at the word. Isn't it Billy Joel who sings, well, I don't know, I can't remember, so he says, why did you have to be a big shot? God doesn't need big shots. But he will use your sanctified scholarship. Spiritual endowment is more important than educational advancement. I'll let that one go. Number five, this is a quote from one of the Puritans, things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit than a piece of paper will stop a bullet. Things of this world will no more keep out trouble of spirit than a piece of paper will stop a bullet. Which of us this morning doesn't know any measure of anxiety? Which of us know, doesn't know what it is to worry about anything at all? Which of us is not prepared to acknowledge that there are times when we think if we could only secure this or attain that or get a hold of this or become one of them, that that would deal with the trouble within our spirits, within our souls. If we could achieve this, if we could become this, if we could own this, then it would all be well. The fact of the matter is it never will, loved ones. We will never deal with the earnest wrestling within our souls by trying to cram our lives with anything other than God himself. You cannot fulfill the restlessness of your heart by Christian service, but you can with Christ. You cannot answer the deepest longings of your soul by some kind of frantic activity, but you can by casting your burdens upon the Lord and discovering that he sustains you. And some of you this morning, unbeknown to the people around you, behind your smiling visage, there's a deep trouble in your soul. It would be a strange group of 850 if there weren't some. I want you to know on the authority of God's word that you will never answer the, that, that angst within you by trying to paper over the emptiness with things of this world. He who dies with the most toys dies with the most toys. Sixthly, landing light number six, which actually in terms of our expected time of arrival has become a little more encouraging, I think you'll note. I want to send you out of here before 11.30, that way you may choose to invite me back. There again, you may not, in which case that's fine. Number six. <laughs> Number six. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. This is one of my landing lights. It's vital to me. I have to watch myself now because I may go off on a great discursus and fail to fulfill my obligation to you. I want to acknowledge the unique place of singleness that God may choose to give to some. I want to acknowledge that there are some who perhaps long for a relationship that they may never enjoy for whatever reason. I want to learn to be sensitive to what that means. But I want to testify from my own experience that in the gift of God to me, in a wife, and in my wife, 
which one would expect to be the case. He has granted me great and untelling favor. Without any stretch of the imagination, I could never be here today. I could never function as God has asked me to function in my church and to some small measure beyond, were it not for the fact of the favor he has granted me in my wife. I met this girl when she was thirteen and a half. My oldest girl is now nine. Anybody who even casts a glance in her direction before she reaches 44, I will personally strengthen. <laughs> so the notion that my father-in-law would ever allow this Scottish rapscallion into his home with these four daughters that he had is incredible to me now. I can't tell you all the story, but the abridged version goes like this. One Sunday afternoon, we get invited to the house of an American family. That in itself was a great event, because it was London, and I never saw an American family. I never saw anybody put jello with roast beef in my life. <laughs> it was unbelievable to me. They passed the thing around and went around about four times before I realized I was supposed to take some of this stuff. You take the wobbling mass and you put it on the roast beef. Unbelievable. I mean, now, I, I, was nearly, I nearly went down a side street there, I just stopped myself. Anyway, on that day, and I was 16, very old, I was 16, I went home after the weekend where we had this lunch, and I told my mother, I said, hey, I met this girl. And I said, she is the loveliest girl I have ever seen. My mother said, essentially, yeah, that's the fourth time you've told me that this week. <laughs> and I said, no, no. I said, you don't understand. I said, this is different. Well, who is she? Well, she's called Sue. Well, how old is she? Well, I said, she's, she's, uh, I was going to lie, you know, and I said, no, she, I said, she was 414 in uh, October. And she said, she's a 13-year-old child and you're coming home telling me? I said, yeah, I'm telling you. And I said, I sent her a postcard from Carnaby Street and I'm going to write to her. And she said she'll write back. So I wrote to her and she wrote back. And I wrote to her again and she wrote back. And I wrote to her for seven years and four of them across the Atlantic Ocean. And finally in August of 75, I chased her down into a little Baptist church in the outskirts of Philadelphia <laughs> and stole her away from her evil father. <laughs> and in 15 years of marriage and in 15 years of pastoral ministry, I've discovered this, that there is no greater joy under heaven in human relationships than the joy of a meaningful, fulfilled, dynamic relationship with your spouse and there probably is no greater pain under heaven than to get that wrong. So listen young people, don't extrapolate on the basis of my story, 
I, if my daughter or my son pulls this stunt I, I, that I've just described to you, I think I'll go nuts. I can't imagine it. It's not a story to be reproduced by example, by following an example. But I want to tell you this. You better make sure that you are careful, that you are sensible, that you are listening well to the advice of those who are your peers, your mentors, your loved ones. For there is no decision from a human perspective that you could ever make that could ever be so right or ever be so wrong as to commit yourself for the rest of your life to the individual that God does not intend for you. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and is granted favor by the Lord. Of course, the flip side is also true to some degree girls. Number seven, making a quantum leap. Number seven, if our prayer is meager, it is because we believe it to be supplemental, not fundamental. If our prayer is meager, it is because we believe it to be supplemental, not fundamental. Do you have a prayer life? Do you have a prayer diary? Do you have a prayer partner? Do you have a place that you go and pray? Do you pray? Do you believe this? That you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can do more than pray until you've prayed. Do you believe that prayer is a glandular condition? So you just do it when you feel like it? I want to tell you unreservedly this morning that if I only prayed when I felt like it, I'd probably only pray about five days out of the year. I don't know anybody that ever did anything for God, but somehow somebody helped them in the discipline of prayer. We said something of this last night in the church. I want to reinforce it in your life. If your prayer life is meager, then it's because deep down you believe it to be supplemental, not fundamental. And there's probably no greater advance that you will ever make in your Christian pilgrimage than to set that equation to rights. I don't say that to you as somebody who holds the answers to all the questions, as somebody who is some gigantic prayer warrior. But I have been around some who are. And the wee man that I mentioned to you, T.S. Mooney, the little Irish Presbyterian, was an example to me of that. Not only did he have a bunch of funny stories, not only did he know the Westminster Confession of Faith off by heart. He was a bachelor, that's why he had all the time to memorize it. But he prayed. And when I stayed in his apartment for a week in Londonderry some years ago, I was struck by the fact that I never went to bed after him, he always upstaged me, as it were, upstaged me. He was always up beyond me, although he was 78 years old. And he was always up before me. I couldn't get up ahead of him. He was always up. He always lit the fire. And he always prayed. And on the morning that he died, he died alone in his apartment. The couple who looked after him 
having called the apartment and found there was no reply, decided to go around thinking that it would be strange if he'd gone out that early in the morning. And what he feared most they discovered as they entered the room to call on him and find there was no reply. And they found him. He was dressed. He always wore a little tweed suit. His tie was properly tied. And he had fallen on his knees across his bed. And as they lifted his body, they pulled away the papers from underneath him. And the papers from underneath him were his prayer lists for that day. Who will be the praying warriors of our generation? Eight. You still with me? Should I stop now? No? Do eight? Okay, thank you. I don't want to take you for granted. I don't want to stand up here and dribble down my chin. Number eight. Number eight. More spiritual progress is made through failure and tears than through success and laughter. More spiritual progress is made through failure and tears than through success and laughter. That's why the writer to the Hebrews expounds the principle so clearly in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord chastens and disciplines every son he loves. And those who do not experience the disciplining of the Lord prove themselves to be illegitimate. A graphic picture. No discipline is pleasant in the immediacy of it, but yet later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If I may come back to this girl for a minute. When I was 19 years old, I had set my life up the way I wanted it. I had written it out. I had mapped it out. Let me tell you what it was. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And I was going to Leicester University to study law. I wanted to have a BMW 2002, which shows you how old I really am. You can buy one for $55 now. And I wanted to marry an American girl called Susan Jones. And I wrote it out. And I was just waiting for the Lord to sign it. And God chose in a number of ways to totally redirect my life. To humble me, to some degree at least, through failure and through disappointment. To devastate me in the sudden and dramatic loss of my mother when I was 20 years old, and some of you can identify with that. And as I look back through these years, from then until now, my personal human experience confirms what the Bible teaches. That whatever small advances I have made in my spiritual pilgrimage, more has come about in my response to failure and in my experience of grief than has come about through any apparent success and a bunch of laughs. I think you know me well enough, at least in our dialogue this morning, to realize that I'm not suggesting to you some kind of pietistic, morbid approach to life. I love to laugh, but the landing light is vital. The penultimate landing light is this. 
quote from a man who died in a plane crash who was the home director of the China Inland Mission in Great Britain, Fred Mitchell, a friend of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this was his quote, You can never lead souls heavenward unless climbing yourself. You need not be very high up, but you must be climbing. You can never lead souls heavenward unless climbing yourself. You need not be very high up, but you must be climbing. In other words, there's no point in me coming to this college and standing in front of you today unless in all honesty of heart and soul, if you were to spend time rubbing shoulders with me, you would not discover me to be a spiritual giant. You only need to ask those who know me best to dispense with that mythology and if no one else, then ask my wife. But I hope you would discover me to be somebody who is still climbing. Are you climbing this morning? Are you climbing? Are you climbing on track? Or have you flattened out? Reach your cruising altitudes. Trim the engines back. And decided to glide. There's no place for gliders in the formation flying of God's Air Force. Number 10, a quote I think from Charles Bridges, I can't remember. Remember, these just came after the pizza. Number 10, the narrow way was never hit upon by chance. Neither did a heedless man ever lead a holy life. The narrow way was never hit upon by chance, neither did a heedless man ever live a holy life. The key from a human perspective and under God to Daniel's great success, as you read the opening chapters of Daniel, was that he understood this principle. And as you read it, you discover that he purposed in his heart. And as children in Sunday school in Scotland, we used to sing a little song, Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. You will never just one day wake up and find that you're living a holy life. You will never somehow be caught on the driftwood, as it were, of spirituality and realize, hey, I'm in the place I should be. You're going to have to set your course, set your compass. Did I tell you this story before? I'm going to end with it. And if I did, it's a reminder. And if I didn't, it's kind of new. Chaplain to the Navy, Second World War, south coast of England, Southampton. Meeting with a group of men, the sailors are telling the chaplain that despite the fact that he is calling them to head for the narrow gate and to follow that line through, he should realize what they've discovered, namely that they're not really responsible for their decisions, that if the chaplain would get out of his ivory tower, he would discover that they were just caught up relentlessly in the tides that were blowing, and they couldn't help themselves, that they weren't really living for Christ the way they meant to or the way they might be expected to. 
And the chaplain took them out of the room and looked out over the coastline with them. And as he looked out, there were some sailing ships there. And then he said to them words to this effect. One ship goes east. One ship goes west. By the self-same wind that blows. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determines which way it goes. Are your sails set to mix metaphors, to reach the harbor of heaven? Are the landing lights in line to hit the runway dead on? The narrow way was never hit upon by chance. Neither did a heedless young man or young woman ever live a holy life. Thank you for your patience. I make it four minutes to the half hour. Let us pray.